This morning we come to the end of the book of Acts. Since last September, this book has led us through the first few decades of Christianity. We've seen the church being born on the day of Pentecost. The day Jesus' followers were clothed with power from on high. That's what God had promised through his Old Testament prophets. It's what Jesus had promised before he returned to heaven. And it happened on the day of Pentecost. God's people were filled with the Holy Spirit. From that day on, God has been living among his people. And that truth has been the foundation that underlies the whole book of Acts from chapter 2 onwards. It's been said that throughout Acts, the presence of the Spirit is seen as the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It's what makes a person a Christian. The men and women we've seen in this book were not superheroes. They were ordinary people, empowered by Almighty God. If the presence and power of the Spirit is the foundation of Acts... The spread of God's word is the story of Acts. Back in chapter 1, just before he returned to heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts has traced that spread of the word, the spread of the good news about Jesus. It has been opposed every step of the way, but it has continued to spread. Men and women have not always accepted it in great numbers. In some places, we're told only a few believed, but in every city, people have believed the good news, and they've found forgiveness and new life. They have been adopted into the family of God. Now this morning we come to the end of the book of Acts, but we're going to see that actually this is an unfinished story. We're going to see that the book ends with a feeling of incompleteness. It feels a bit unsatisfactory. And as we look at this, I'm going to suggest that's exactly what Luke intended us to feel. He's telling us we have a part to play in finishing this unfinished story. So if you haven't already opened your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 28. In the church Bible, it's page 1126. Last week we saw Paul go through a storm and then a shipwreck. And eventually he arrived in Rome. You may remember why he's in Rome. The Jews in Jerusalem made accusations against him. Those accusations led to his imprisonment by the Romans. And when Paul realized he was never going to get any justice in Judea, because the Roman governors there wanted to do a favor to the Jews, when Paul realized that, in exasperation, he appealed to have his case heard by Caesar. And so he was taken to Rome. And we join him this morning having just arrived in Rome and been put in a house where he lives chained to a Roman soldier, waiting for his appointment to appear before Caesar. We pick up at chapter 28, verse 17. 
Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. When Paul arrives in Rome, he doesn't waste any time. After three days, he gets back to his mission of spreading the word about Jesus. But before he gets to that message, he does some groundwork. In verses 17 to 22, a friendly approach leads to a gospel opportunity. Verse 17 tells us the leaders of the Jews respond to Paul's invitation. They arrive at his house. And look at Paul's first words to them. My brothers. That's a remarkable way for Paul to refer to these men. Since the day he became a follower of Jesus, the Jews, his own people, have caused him no end of suffering. In fact, for the last two years and more, he's been stuck in jail because of their false accusations against him. But Paul won't give up on his people. There have been times when he's walked away from a particular group of Jews because they violently rejected his message. But Paul will not give up on the Jews as a people. And here in Rome, he makes a friendly approach to the Jewish leaders. 
He begins by assuring them he is no enemy of Judaism. And in case they've misunderstood why he's here in Rome appealing to Caesar, he says in verse 19, it's not because I want to bring any charge against my own people. In fact, he has called these Jews together to reassure them that he shares the hope of Israel. It's because of that hope that he's gone through beatings and shipwreck. It's because of that hope he is now bound with this chain to a Roman guard day and night. What does Paul mean by the hope of Israel? Well, it's something he has referred to quite often in Acts. It's a way of talking about the promises of God contained in the Old Testament. Paul cares about those promises as much as any other Jew. He treasures them. He's not a man who's trying to abandon his heritage. Not at all. He believes he's found the one who fulfills all the promises of his heritage. He's found the one every Jew has been longing for, God's Messiah. I think there's a lot we can learn from Paul's approach here. It's easy for you and me to take on a negative, aggressive stance towards our society. It's easy to get to the point where we offer nothing but condemnation. And certainly there's always plenty to condemn. And there is a need for condemning things in our culture. Paul is not afraid to do that. He'll do some of it later in our passage. But that is different from having a permanent condemning posture towards our society. Maybe when you were growing up, a parent or a music teacher told you to improve your physical posture. What they meant was, don't slouch over. Hold your head up and keep your back straight. It's easy to fall into bad physical posture without even realizing it. And it's the same with our mental posture. Without realizing it, being negative and condemning can just become our standard approach. We can end up coming across as a bit angry about everything. And maybe you say, well, it's hard to avoid that. There's so much to be angry about. Maybe so. But we must resist it for the sake of the gospel. Look at Paul here. He had much more reason to be angry than any of us do. But he maintained an open, friendly posture towards unbelievers. He didn't copy the culture around him. He didn't fall in line with it. That's another posture that we can easily fall into. Instead of getting angry about our sinful society, we just join in. We allow ourselves to be carried along with it. Every day we're being told lies about money and possessions and masculinity and femininity. We dare not just accept what society tells us about those things. But what we see here in Paul is that he didn't take either one of those wrong postures to the world around him. He had an open, friendly approach. And at the same time, 
He stayed true to the gospel and actually shared the gospel. We can learn from his approach. We should not get exasperated by the fact that lost men and women don't live like Jesus. And at the same time, we mustn't forget that we have good news for them. We have a message that can deliver them from God's condemnation. We don't have to spend our time condemning them ourselves. Back in Rome, these Jewish leaders listened to Paul. But they're also honest with him about their suspicions with regard to Christianity. They tell him that they haven't received any bad reports about him from Judea. That may simply be because Paul's ship arrived ahead of the reports from Judea. But in any case, they've heard nothing bad about Paul. But they have heard negative things about Christianity. In verse 22, they describe it as a sect that people everywhere are talking against. So they're not initially positive about Paul's faith. But they're willing to give him a hearing. It's unlikely that would have happened if he'd started out with an angry posture towards them. The friendly approach of this particular Christian has won a hearing for the Christian message. And that's what Paul focuses on the next time he meets with them. Verses 23 to 28 show him telling the truth, getting a mixed response, and giving a warning against eternal suicide. Verse 23 tells us that on the arranged day, the leaders came back and they brought others with them. And then from morning till evening, Paul explains and declares to them the kingdom of God. He tries to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Acts talks a lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, the beginning of the book tells us it was the topic of Jesus teaching to his disciples during the 40 days between his resurrection and his return to heaven. That's what he spoke to them about. The kingdom of God is a way of talking about God's rule. At one level, he rules over every square inch of his creation. All of it is his kingdom. But the New Testament can also speak about the kingdom growing. It talks about men and women coming into the kingdom. In that second sense, those who are in the kingdom are those who submit willingly and joyfully to God's rule. And that's where Jesus comes in. We submit to God's rule by submitting to Jesus as our king. The reason this is so important is that it won't allow us to think of a Christian as someone who prayed a prayer once and then got on with living for themselves and following their own agenda in life. According to the New Testament, a Christian is someone who has come into God's kingdom. And being in the kingdom means you're under the rule of the king. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live to serve Christ our King. 
He has authority over our time, our opinions, our sex life, our money, and everything else. Christianity is a life of daily submission to the king and the king's word. What Paul tries to do here with these Jews in Rome is to show them how the kingdom of God, which all of them believed in, is connected to Jesus. Paul is trying to help them see that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And look at the response he gets in verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. That's always the way it is. We've seen it all through Acts. There's always a mixed response. And notice the text doesn't say some were convinced but others were confused or didn't understand. No, some were convinced but others would not believe. They knew what Paul was saying but they refused to believe it. And it's that refusal to believe that leads Paul to end the meeting with this final statement, beginning in the middle of verse 25. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Paul indicates that this is a quotation from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. When God spoke those words to Isaiah, he was commissioning him to be his messenger. And the first thing God told him was, most of the people you speak to are not going to listen to you. That doesn't sound like much of a sales pitch. Not very motivational. But God was teaching Isaiah a crucial lesson. We share God's message first and foremost because he has told us to share it. He has commissioned us. That's what drives us. The important thing for us is not whether people like the message. It's not whether large numbers seem to be responding to the message. We share it because the king we serve has given us the message. And it is our joy and privilege to do what he has called us to do. When he commissioned Isaiah, God warned him that by and large, his audience were people with calloused hearts. Now, if you happen to be walking over hot coals, it's pretty helpful to have calloused feet. Feet that have built up layers and layers of hard skin so they can't feel anything. Calloused feet may sometimes be an advantage, but a calloused heart is deadly. It means that you hear the good news about Jesus, but your heart doesn't warm to the goodness of it. 
It means you see evidence that God is at work, but your heart doesn't grasp the fact that God is at work. When a man or woman's heart is callous, the good news doesn't penetrate that heart. So the person won't turn in repentance to God. And so they won't find the spiritual healing they need. Here in Rome, Paul quotes this passage from Isaiah. He quotes it as a challenge and a warning to these Jews. Look what happened to your ancestors. Look how God described them. And then look at yourselves. Don't make the same mistake they did. Don't harden your hearts. Don't turn away from the message about Jesus. That would be eternal suicide. Your hearts will become increasingly hardened and you won't be able to turn and be healed. In verse 28, Paul points to the Gentiles. Initially, the first Christians had all been Jews. But more recently, it's the Gentiles who have been responding. These Jews are in danger of turning out just like their ancestors and missing out on the hope of Israel. At the beginning of this passage, Paul showed us the importance of having a friendly approach to people, an open posture. Here we see there's no guarantee people are going to believe what we tell them, no matter how friendly we are. And Paul shows us we must also be willing to say hard, challenging things to people, to confront them about the danger of unbelief. And so if you are someone who is still resisting Jesus, please think about Paul's challenge here. Every time you hear him calling you and you turn away, your heart gets a little bit more calloused. It's a great thing to investigate Christianity, but it's dangerous to do nothing once you've investigated it. When you've heard enough to believe, but you won't believe. You're in danger of eternal suicide at that point, turning away from the offer of new life in Jesus. So please investigate, yes, ask questions. But don't become like a student who never actually graduates. Take the next step and respond to what you hear. And be aware of this too. Others will respond. Don't hedge your bets because you're worried about the future of Christianity. God is building and will build his church. He's going to do that whether you're on board or not. That's what we see in the final verses of Acts. Verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have wondered if Paul's words in verse 28 
mean that God has rejected the Jews as a people. But I don't see any evidence for that in the New Testament. I think we are to assume the all who came to see Paul included both Gentiles and Jews. Paul continues to welcome and to share the good news with all who will listen. And remember the circumstances Paul is working in. He's a prisoner chained to a guard. Too often you and I spend our lives waiting for better circumstances so we can start to serve God. Paul got on with it in every circumstance. Now certainly the way that Paul served God varied with his circumstances. His circumstances at this point in his life mean he can't go out preaching in the synagogues and the marketplaces of Rome. He can only talk to those who come to see him. But Paul takes that in his stride. He knows that he's called to serve. So he lets God worry about his circumstances, and he does what he can in the circumstances God gives him. Every stage of our life has challenges. I've come to the conclusion we almost always think we are too busy and overburdened no matter what stage we're in. So let's just accept the fact that we're going to feel that way and ask how we can serve God anyway. Let's not use our circumstances as an excuse. If we take that approach, we'll always find an excuse for not serving God. What we see from Paul the prisoner is availability and boldness in the circumstances God has given. The Romans are allowing Paul to stay in a rented house, which is a sign that they don't see him as much of a threat. And it gives Paul more opportunity to talk freely with visitors and also to write. And Paul uses the opportunity well. We know it was during this time that he wrote his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, and the Colossians. And Paul doesn't worry that sharing the gospel might damage his chances of being released. He doesn't keep quiet so he can get released and then speak up about Jesus. No, Paul is not that calculating. He preaches boldly about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't hold anything back for fear of the future. And in his letter to the Philippians, he mentions the impact he's able to have on the Roman guards. They would have been chained to him in shifts. He says, It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul is supposed to be the prisoner but his guards have become a captive audience for the gospel. Paul is an example to us of what it means to show availability and boldness in the circumstances God has given. What I said a moment ago about availability applies equally to the issue of boldness. We almost always think the situation we are in 
is not a suitable one for sharing the gospel. The person in front of us doesn't seem to be ready to hear. Or we don't know them well enough. Or we wonder what the consequences will be if we speak up. And certainly sometimes it is not the time to share. But it's probably the time much more often than we think it is. So when it comes to whether or not we mention Jesus, let's set this rule for ourselves. If in doubt, say it. Mentioning Jesus should be my default setting. And I'll leave it to God to make it very obvious when it's not the time to share. Well, at this point, I would guess that most of us have a question in our minds. What happened to Paul? Since his conversion in chapter 9, he has been by far the main human character in Acts. And since his arrest in chapter 21, the main tension has centered on what's going to happen to him. There have been murder plots against him, deliberations by various Roman governors. Will we let him go or not? And last week we had that crazy sea voyage. Will he drown before he gets to Rome? And now, having arrived in Rome and settled in, it's as if the screen suddenly goes black. And it stays black. If this was a film we were watching in the cinema, there might be boos from the audience. Someone might assume that the projector was broken. They'd go looking for a staff person to get it running again. But they'd be told, no, there's nothing wrong with the projector. That's it. And because this is such an abrupt end, people have looked for various ways to explain it. Some people have wondered if the full ending has been lost. Some people have wondered if Luke intended to write another volume, but he never managed it. Some people have wondered if Luke didn't know what happened to Paul. But there is no evidence for any of those ideas. In fact, it's almost certain Luke did know what happened to Paul. In verse 30, he's able to tell us the situation he's described lasted for two years. So he must have known that something changed after those two years. The consensus among scholars seems to be that Paul was temporarily released after the two years that are mentioned here, but eventually taken captive again and finally executed. It seems very likely Luke knew about all that, but he chooses not to mention it. Why? Well, it's helpful to remember that Acts is not, in fact, a biography of the Apostle Paul. It may have seemed that way in recent chapters, but Acts is about God working to spread his word, the word of new life in Jesus. Paul has been one of God's main instruments to do that, but Paul is not the star of the show. At regular points throughout the book, we've been told, and so the word of God spread. Sometimes the exact wording varies a little bit. 
but over and over again, and so the word of God spread. Those comments are like little markers throughout the book. Each one reminds us that the word first preached at Pentecost in Jerusalem has been spreading outwards from Jerusalem. And now, in chapter 28, the word has spread all the way to Rome. Acts is the biography not of Paul, but of the progress of the gospel. And that progress hasn't finished. In chapter 1, Jesus said it would ultimately go to the ends of the earth. And Rome is certainly a long way from Jerusalem, but it's not the end of the earth. The word has spread far, but it has even farther to go. And so actually Luke has not ended the story abruptly. He hasn't ended it at all. He's left the story open-ended. But it's a confident open-endedness. Luke wrote this book in Greek. And in Greek, the last word of the book is translated in our Bibles by the two English words, without hindrance. The word order might be a little different in your Bible. But I think Luke was very intentional about his final word. He's ending with the assurance that God's word is unstoppable. Luke is saying to everyone who reads his book, I've written 28 chapters, but the story isn't finished. You are living in chapter 29. God is still at work in your time. Luke says, I've told you about the beginning Now you're living in the midst of God's ongoing work. So Luke is calling us to be confident about the open-endedness of his book. The word is unstoppable. We can be sure of that. But Luke is also challenging us. We live in Acts chapter 29. And the question is, Will we be a faithful church? There's no doubt about God's faithfulness. What about ours? Listen to these words from a preacher called David Cook. Acts is calling us to press always beyond the fringes. It doesn't matter whether it's the next house, the next street the next suburb, the next village, or even the next city. God's purpose is always that the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. The church in every generation needs to push beyond the fringe. This coming November, we're going to be celebrating 40 years as a church. Now, I wasn't born when this church was planted. But I do know this, when Tony and Celia and the others began this work, their vision was not just to achieve some sort of critical mass, some stable number of believers, and then become a club that exists for the comfort of its members. No, this church was planted with the aim of seeing the word continue to spread in this area. 
And by God's grace, there has been growth during the past 40 years. But the challenge for us today is this. Will we commit ourselves to being a faithful church in the future? Will we be faithful to our mission as an Acts chapter 29 church? Or will we give up pressing beyond the fringes with the gospel? Will we be content to become just a Christian club? There's no doubt at all that the society around us is becoming hostile toward us. And the temptation is to just circle up the wagons and take cover behind them and shake our fists at the outside world. But that is not the way of the faithful church. The faithful church commits itself to its mission, pressing outwards, taking the gospel out. So as we look forward to our 40th anniversary in November, I would ask you to commit to praying for the gospel witness of this church. Let's stop being afraid to pray for lost people by name. We seem to have that problem in our prayer meetings. So let's get over that barrier and fill our prayer meetings with the names of people who need Jesus. We all know some of them. And we can't save them. Let's plead with Jesus to do that. Let's ask him to open eyes and soften hearts. Then let's open our mouths and speak boldly to those people about Jesus. Let's not allow this anniversary to be an exercise in nostalgia and self-congratulation. Let's ask God to make it the beginning of a new phase in the progress of the word in this area. And as we pray in the next few days about taking on an associate pastor, let's see this as an Acts 29 decision. Not a step that we take to cater for ourselves, but a step for the cause of the gospel, the progress of the word. Let's pray. Father, we feel our weakness, and so we ask you to give us courage, give us strength. Use us in the ongoing story of the progress of the word. We want to be a church that is faithful to our calling. So will you give us the passion and the power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name? Use us until this land is filled with your glory. Use us to bring on that day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Let's sing together, Lord, the 